Take your golf expertise to the next level with Lynx Premier, unlocking the most exciting and insightful coverage of the game's courses, travel, communities, architecture, and more. With Lynx Premier, our latest subscription tiers offer something for everyone. Whether you enjoy reading the print edition of Lynx, clicking through our digital magazine, scrolling around lynxmagazine.com, or all of the above. Plus, subscribers receive priority notifications for exclusive Lynx events, a welcome discount code to the Lynx online shop, and much more. Get your all-access pass today by visiting lynxmagazine.com and clicking the subscribe link. Welcome back to another episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast. I am Al Lunsford, digital editor of Lynx Magazine, joined by my co-host Joe Passoff. Joe, kicking it to you. What are we talking about today? You know, Al, these days, with social media, with the digital sphere and everything else, it's hard to overlook almost anything, okay? Not like it was 20 and 40 and 60 years ago, but we thought we'd focus today Maybe not on overlooked architects, but certainly underrated architects. And again, there's so many websites devoted to this stuff and so many platforms that it doesn't seem that anybody hasn't had that stone lifted up and let's analyze and everything else. But there are definitely a few folks where you look at everything that they accomplished both 100 years ago and recently with different architects, obviously, and say, wow, why isn't there more love shown to these individuals? That's what we thought we'd talk about today. And so came up with a short list of five of history's most underrated architects. And that's where we're going to go today. Yeah, these are guys, you know, we talked about before how we wanted to approach this maybe don't get enough shine you know maybe you know you've seen their name here or there they might have only been focused and their courses are in one particular part of the country so they're not as familiar uh to the national audience but certainly on a regional basis they're well known and, and respected but could could get more notoriety and probably should because of the value of their work quality of the design we're going to talk about who the influences are on these guys and some of their well-known courses, but uh, we'll do, Joe's going to do three of them. I'm going to do two of them. We'll try to educate you a little bit on uh, these five individuals, should you not be familiar with their work, and cover a range of, of eras. These are guys across the spectrum, so I know Joe's going to go into the golden age. Most of the golden agers are are probably well known to devoted architecture enthusiasts and, and people who read links and listen to this podcast. But uh, Joe's going to go further deeper into a pair that may not be as well known. And then we'll go into kind of the middle range and, and modern day guys. And at the end, talk about maybe some others that we won't go into too far detail though, but still feel they might deserve more recognition. But uh, with that... Joe, since you have three, I'm going to let you start with your your first architect and uh, give us a little background. So the floor is yours. Thank you, Al. We're going to start off this podcast of history's five most underrated architects with the Golden Age team of Langford and Moreau. Yes, I know some of you sounds like a law firm or perhaps uh, some kind of Hollywood production team, but... These were two architects based in the Midwest, William Boyce Langford, Theodore J. Moreau. And again, I don't expect too many of you to have heard of these guys, but somehow you know their courses. And when I say that, it's because when you look over their list of courses, again, not like pure top 100 stuff, but... Oh, right. Best in state. Best in state. Um, top 100 you can play kind of thing. And we'll get into that. Where I first really became aware of Langford and Moreau was kind of an offhanded comment that came from none other than Tom Doak. 
So back when I was running around in the late 1990s with Lynx magazine, I found myself in the Chicago area. And I was there in the fall of 1997. The next year, Skokie Country Club was scheduled to host the U.S. Senior Amateur. And while I was in Chicago, I mean, there's 40 great golf courses uh, to start with in Chicago that you could choose from. But Skokie caught my interest because they were hosting a USGA event. And in the confidential guide that Tom Doak uh, authored in 1996. His write-up of Skokie said, it's a good Parkland course with some difficult greens and some unusual bunkering, the product of several different designers. And it, among others, it was uh, Donald Ross who had improved on a Tom Bendelow design. And then he mentioned William Langford. And he says, credit for some of the most intriguing work belongs to Langford, including the arresting 220-yard par 3 third hole across water to a high platform green. So since that time, uh, the nines have been reversed to go back to what they were uh, back in the 1920s. So that hole that Tom Doak is referring to is now the 12th. But that captured my imagination to say, yeah, not necessarily the Donald Ross holes that are getting your attention or some of the original Bendelow holes, but rather the Langford holes. So I did play Skokie. I followed what was going on, and I resolved to learn a little bit more about Langford and Moreau. And the thing that really characterizes their designs uh, is very much what some call an engineered style raised platform greens that are, you know, somewhat linear looking because uh, the cuts and fills that went on with those raised platform greens, the bunkers sometimes are so deep uh, that it's a little scary looking, even in the modern age, on if you fall into one, how am I going to get this up and over and onto the green? And, and so in many respects, that People thought about, oh, well, that's what Seth Rayner, you know, uh, with C.B. McDonald and then his protege, Charles Banks, were known for that style. So in some cases, before we were so sophisticated about design, you'd look at that and say, oh, that's that's like a Seth Rayner thing. Well, to an extent, uh, that is somewhat similar to a Seth Rayner look, but in strategies and width and emphasizing the proper angle of approach into the greens. There was as much Donald Ross, uh, honestly, as as the look and feel of Seth Rayner and Rayner and Banks. So Langford and Moreau, man, is it still not ringing any bells? I mean, they did, you know, six or seven holes that remain at Skokie, uh, some of the very best. 3 through 7, 11 through 13. Well, what else have they done that we might know? Uh, well, okay. They've done a few that eh, maybe you've heard of. Uh, Wakanda Club, which was just recently uh, restored and renovated by Tyler Ray. That is in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and had been ranked number one in Iowa for a number of years by the top publications. Happy Hollow Club in Omaha, Nebraska, also ranked number one before Sand Hills ever appeared, and Pete Dye's Firethorn. Happy Hollow was number one in Nebraska. Um, Minnehaha in South Dakota, which has hosted the Champions Tour a number of times since 2018. Okay, so what am I getting at? All right. If you want to go see Langford and Moreau, about as pure as you can find, is a awkwardly named place called the Golf Courses of Lawsonia in Green Lake, Wisconsin. And uh, yeah, don't don't let the the Golf Courses of Lawsonia. Most people call it Lawsonia or Lawsonia Links because there's two courses there: the Links in the Woodlands, and the Links is the Langford Moreau course from 1930. 
that's the one you want to go see. I mean, the other course is fine, um, more of a modern layout, but the Lynx course for these elevated greens, some restored width in the fairways that give you those angles and those really intimidating kind of rectangular-ish bunkers that you just say, I do not want to be in one of those because it's a scary proposition getting up and down. So the Lynx course at Lasonia, easily in people's top 100 public access courses in the country and one of the best bargains in the country. Again, some well-meaning folks out there finally getting around to restoring you know, a number of the features there. Uh, that's where you want to go see this stuff. Now, there's also courses such as Culver Military Academy, which was designed uh, by Langford on his own as a solo project in 1920. That's ranked number two among campus courses in all of the United States by Golf Week, just behind Yale. And this is for a military academy that's nine holes, and they think the architecture is that great. Bobby Weed, a friend of the program here, did a nice uh, renovation restoration back in 2015. Two other courses I want to mention, because I haven't played a lot of Langford Moreau. They typically did tons of stuff in the Midwest, and not all of them were high-profile clubs or munis necessarily, but they worked in 18 states. I mean, that's pretty prolific for mostly the 1920s and a little bit little bit after World War II. But it's interesting that both Langford and Moreau were trained as engineers. Uh, Langford was an excellent player at Yale, part of their three NCAA winning championship teams from 1906 to 1908. And uh, he was twice the president of the ASGCA. I mean, you got to be a pretty popular fellow to get that nomination twice. Got his master's degree in mining engineering at Columbia. I mean, this guy was no dummy. <laughs> and his partner, Moreau, was much more the builder of the courses, whereas Langford did most of the design, very much the way William Flynn and Howard Toomey worked. So many classic courses built by them, but mostly it was Flynn doing the design work and Toomey, the engineer, out building them. So that's a little bit about Langford and Moreau. There is a team that deserves a lot more credit and evaluations. Okay, thank you, Joe. Good good start to this conversation. couple things from me. Uh, Lawsonia, that's a place that we talk about how popular golf has become in Wisconsin and all these new courses being built. It's, it still flies under the radar. I mean, it's, it's an old course from the 1930s. Um, but as you said, some work has been done to restore it. Uh, it's one of the great values in the state and should be part of an itinerary. Uh, if you're looking to mix things up between some resort courses in Wisconsin or, or other well-known projects that have opened there, uh, it, again, it's yeah, best in state. It's top 100 public in the country every year on basically every list. So uh, that is a good one. And um, you know, I, I think you may have mentioned it, but what I read about Langford Moreau is they're big, big on the steam shovel. They know their way around a piece of machinery. And in that time when they were building courses, things. Now, their style was maybe considered a maximalist style where they're building up a lot of features, particularly those those high built-up greens with the surrounds leading to then those deep bunkers like you talked about. Not necessarily the bunkers themselves being deep, but the climbing of the, the face of the green side being a, a real ta challenge. And you can see a lot of that in, in images of the Langford Moreau design courses. You know, Al, we talk so much about minimalism and not disturbing the land very much, especially if it's a great piece of property and just let it be um, and all of that. Well, yeah, those guys were were not that. Now, they respected the sites that they had, but it was so much of a bolder expression that they used for their architecture. And uh, some of it 
you know, was, I mean, really visually intimidating. We like bold. Not everyone likes bold. And that will be uh, something that comes up later in this conversation. And Joe, anything else there? And unless you want me to, to go on to the next. Al, uh, go right ahead. I, I waxed quite lengthily. Wait, is that a word? Um, I went on for a while about Langford and Moreau and partly because, yeah, they deserve um, a little more uh, love and scrutiny. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Who you got? So, Joe, my first one, kind of in the middle range uh, in terms of an era of golf course architecture, is a guy by the name of Ellis Maples. Now, well known for people around my parts, uh, the Maples family, by many accounts, were called the first family of Carolina golf. Ellis Maples designed somewhere in the range of 60 to 70 courses. Uh, the large portion of those were in the southeast, so North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Georgia, Tennessee, and, and parts of the mid-Atlantic region. He grew up working for his father, Frank, who was a longtime superintendent at Pinehurst Country Club, obviously the, the home of American golf now. Ellis's father, Frank, was the superintendent while Donald Ross was cutting his teeth at Pinehurst. That's where the initial interest in golf course architecture from Ellis came. Uh, he got his, his first work in 1937. He worked with William Flynn and Dick Wilson. There's a name for you to uh, think about later in this conversation as well on a nine hole course in Plymouth, North Carolina. As his interest grew, he ended up supervising the construction of Donald Ross's last course, Raleigh Country Club, in 1948 uh, before turning to the architecture field full time. Some of his well known courses now, if you visited the Pinehurst Resort, Pinehurst number five is an Ellis Maples course. That's that's one that's known as one that you want to maybe play as either a primer for the rest of your pine horse grip, as an intro to that style of golf, uh, or maybe as a cool down to your pine horse trip. It's, it's more of like a Donald Ross light type of course, and that lends itself to what Ellis Maple's whole idea and philosophy on building golf courses was. He took a less is more type of approach. He preferred subtlety and simplicity, you know, letting the the drama of the setting do the talking uh, and not try to dominate the sites that he was working on with artificial features. He took a lot of what Donald Ross did in his routings and just kind of bare bones, simplified it down. So very similar style of work to Donald Ross, but uh, really subtle really just letting these golf courses in their setting uh, be the focal point for someone playing the courses. My biggest, you know, when I truly felt like Ellis Maples was someone that needed to be known about more and just from an, an experience of me playing a golf course, it was the first time I played grandfather golf and country club in Linville, North Carolina. Mountain course, considered one of the best courses in North Carolina. Some lists as it has appeared as the number two best in state course right behind Pinehurst number two. So this is a, a very highly regard, regarded course in this state, private, so not many people can go and see it, but it's it's a masterpiece. Um, you have no no holes playing within really view of each other from hole to hole. It's their own individual stadium, if you will. It's set right underneath Grandfather Mountain uh, and the Mile High Bridge swinging above. You have a lot of great views of that. Mountain streams, uh, lakes, and it's just sheer, sheer beauty. Other examples that you can play, you may have heard of uh, the Country Club of North Carolina in Pinehurst, the Dogwood Course there, Forest Oaks in Greensboro, which hosted the Greater Greensboro Open for many years. Uh, Country Club of South Carolina in Florence, South Carolina. Uh, and I've played a few times the farm course here at Greensboro Country Club, uh, which has since been redone, but was an original Maples design. As in the, the first family of Carolina golf, uh, Ellis's son, Dan Maples, is also a name you may have heard, who's now a golf course architect. 
designed several courses in the southeast as well, including uh, if you've been to the Myrtle Beach area, you may have seen a trio of courses, The Witch, The Wizard, and Man of War, really creative course names for mystical golf. Those are Dan Maple's designs, and he continues on the legacy of the Maples family uh, down here in the Carolinas. Joe, you know, I think Ellis Maples is, in terms of Donald Ross protégés, he's the guy uh, next in line to the air for for Donald Ross-style golf courses. And it's mainly just kind of around here in the Southeast where people have heard that name, but uh, he deserves greater recognition for sure in the conversation of great architects, underrated architects, in my opinion. Yeah, Al, I'm definitely with you on that. I mean, you know, I've heard it from uh, so many architects that I've talked to uh, about what an incredible master Donald Ross was at routing golf courses. Um, and for Ellis Maples to have learned from his father and Donald Ross, I mean, who built those courses, you know, a lot of that understandably had to sink in when it came to routing. So Ellis Maples was one of those guys too. They weren't always dealing with big budgets, huge budgets, but yet the naturalness, uh, the routing, I mean, maybe sacrificing a little bit of difficulty which would have created more notoriety in some cases. But in other cases, the memberships were grateful that they had a graceful golf course to play that was also plenty tough. Um, you know, Country Club of North Carolina being a very good example, uh, host the 1980 U.S. Amateur where Hal Sutton, I uh, got nine and eight victory, I think that was, in the final. Um, so, you know, certainly capable of designing tournament golf courses. Forest Oaks tested those guys year after year in the Greater Greensboro Open. I mean, sometimes it was single digits under par that won after four rounds. So, uh, and usually with pretty good ball strikers that would that survive there. But grandfather, like you said, I know it's private. It's a mountain golf course. I mean, it's the mountains of Western North Carolina, yet um, again, uh, calling Tom Doak into this, I remember when he uh, complimented the course, uh, talking about what a great walk it was. And although uh, my day there involved uh, riding in a buggy, as our friends across the pond would say, um, I was just fully aware of how beautifully the holes unfolded one after the next after the next. And there was another admirer of that golf course in the 60s. In 70s, uh, Clifford Roberts, the Augusta National Domo, uh, who decided that the sand in the bunkers there was the best he had ever seen and experienced and ordered the same sand for Augusta National. So, you know, both in routing and in uh, executing the construction, they definitely got an awful lot right at Grandfather and credit Ellis Maples for a whole bunch of that. Yeah, and back to what you said about the difficulty, you know, Maples may be ahead of his time. You know, we talk about people who build golf courses these days. A lot of new courses emphasize, you know, playability and multiple ways to play a hole, but rewarding a player for being in the right spot uh, or hitting a, a heroic type of shot. You know, he he opened up, you know, ways to run the ball up, but rewarded the type of shot you, that you hit in the air uh, to an accurate position and bunkers used instead of to challenge maybe more so he used the, them to just frame the hole and kind of tell you where to go so wouldn't necessarily be something that you would uh be threatened to hit in on a lot of his courses but could end up in but more so just use them for for looks and for uh telling the golfer the direction to take take your golf expertise to the next level with links premiere Unlocking the most exciting and insightful coverage of the game's courses, travel, communities, architecture, and more. With Lynx Premier, our latest subscription tiers offer something for everyone. Whether you enjoy reading the print edition of Lynx, clicking through our digital magazine, scrolling around lynxmagazine.com, or all of the above. Plus, subscribers receive priority notifications for exclusive Lynx events, a welcome discount code to the Lynx online shop, and much more. 
Get your all-access pass today by visiting linksmagazine.com and clicking the subscribe link. Moving on from Maples to someone I, I hinted at, Joe, who's next on your list? Al, we are going to discuss one of the mid-century masters, Dick Wilson. The reason that I chose Dick Wilson as one of history's most underrated architects is partly because his name is nowhere near as well known as his leading competitor of the day. And I say the day, 40s, 50s, into the early 60s. That name would be Robert Trent Jones. And Robert Trent Jones is certainly one of the titans of architecture uh, in in history. Uh, One of the most famous names associated with it. Yet there was a period in the 1950s and 60s where Dick Wilson uh, was just about Trent Jones's equal uh, in uh, competing for some of the same jobs and in uh, building golf courses that achieved tournament and top 100 recognition. Yet Robert Trent Jones is uh, ubiquitous. Um, not going to say omnipotent, but I mean, he has a trail. He has a golf course named after him. He has, you know, and Dick Wilson. Um, yeah, not so much. So why is that? Well, Dick Wilson, just to get us started for courses that, uh, you would know their names, uh, Doral Country Club, 1962, PGA Tour host for more than 50 years. Uh, Hog Hill, host of the Western Open for so many years in Chicago. Bay Hill in Orlando, still a PGA Tour venue. La Costa in the San Diego area, many tour events. Uh, National Cash Register, NCR, in Dayton, Ohio, which has hosted uh, several major championships, including the 1969 PGA. Uh, And then among original courses, uh, also Royal Montreal, which was uh, a President's Cup site. And then a golf course, a private club in Florida, which some consider his masterpiece, Pine Tree. And again, it doesn't get as much recognition as it once did. We'll start to explain why. But at least you've heard of a number of those golf courses, and there were many others. Wilson also, at that time, was one of the top renovation, go-to renovation guys. And that includes Wingfoot West, Bel Air, Aronimink, Colonial Country Club in Texas, uh, Metropolitan in Australia, and uh, and n- n- close to the time that he left us, Marion East. So this guy was prominent. He was prolific. He worked in a number of different states and areas, had some great lieutenants. Well, how did he happen to come into this? He was not a trained architect. No, um, he was a guy who worked on a crew. His father was a dirt farmer, so to speak, uh, labeled, uh, labored in dirt uh, construction movement um, and that sort of thing. And uh, eventually, Dick Wilson went to work building Marion. And he worked on a number of other great golf courses with uh, William Flynn, including Shinnecock Hills in 1930-1931. Uh, where he did so much work as the foreman of the construction project that some over the years actually mislabeled that as a Dick Wilson design. And yeah, you can't quite do that. He had a lot to do there, but the architect was William Flynn, you know, with with Howard Toomey doing the engineering. So eventually Flynn uh, had Wilson go to Florida to build one of his golf courses And then World War II broke out, and basically Dick Wilson was stuck in Florida. There was no work. There were no new golf courses being built. So he took a job as a superintendent at Delray Beach in Florida. And that's where he got to know Pete Dye's father, 
and they play a little bit of golf together and some of those things. When construction finally began again in the late 1940s, Dick Wilson was there in Florida to start building golf courses, including West Palm Beach Country Club. And then came the further commissions in the 1950s, like NCR, like Meadowbrook on Long Island, a new golf course for a historic old club that no less than Herbert Warren Wynn called one of the greatest American designs since Augusta National. And that was Meadowbrook, which again, you don't hear too much about these days. He did a new course for Deepdale, one of the most exclusive clubs in Long Island. And then he did all of those courses that hosted tour events in the early 1960s. So why isn't Wilson better known? Well, for starters, he died in 1965, whereas Robert Trent Jones kept going and going and going uh, well into the 1990s and right through the end of that decade. So as we got more involved and concerned and caring and sophisticated about architecture, we recognize Trent Jones for his amazing contributions. And Dick Wilson just kind of got a little lost in the ether. In addition, some of his great golf courses were heavily redacted, meaning redesigned. Arnold Palmer bought Bay Hill and tweaked it on his own with his own company for years. La Costa was classic Dick Wilson with his top lieutenant, Joe Lee, and they've had some revisions over the years, including a brand new reimagination opening this June from Gil Hans. So some of those golf courses just aren't what they were when Wilson designed them. And uh, others, you can still see a fair amount of work. What was Wilson known for? Well, that was part of the other problem, is some of his design precepts looked a little bit too close, like the guy he was accused of copying, Robert Trent Jones. They had the runway tees. They had elevated greens, which called for forced carries for the most part. They had big sprawling bunkers. Well, okay. But in Wilson's case, a lot of those elevated greens were tilted at maybe a 45 degree angle so that a front pin placement was actually fairly gettable especially for players with lesser ability. But if it was on that far axis, like a Redan, only without that same contouring, you had to carry bunkers and sometimes water to get to it. And man, that was a hard golf shot, especially hitting long irons in the day. That's what Pine Tree was all about, was hole after hole after hole of just having to hit a really good drive and having to hoist an approach shot with a three, four, five, or six iron uh, over bunkers to get at a hole location, or else you were facing a 45, 50-foot putt. So Wilson had beautiful stylings in his bunkers. Some have described them as puzzle pieces, others as amoeba-like in shape, but they had a certain flair to them where they were wriggly sorts of features, not the gum chewing gum guy, but ones that kind of uh, wriggled a little bit. All right, you you get it. So, Al, I'll conclude with Dick Wilson. That's why he wasn't better known with some anecdotes, you know, that kind of helps us learn a little bit more about Dick Wilson. Something that Reese Jones told me back 15 years ago, there was a story in a 1962 Sports Illustrated issue called Golf's Battling Architects, and it was a full-blown profile of Dick Wilson and Robert Trent Jones. Reese Jones told me 15 years ago, quote, they were definitely rivals. They definitely competed. They watched each other. They copied each other. Dad wasn't happy when he lost the Royal Montreal job in 1958 to Dick Wilson. Now, nevertheless, Reese did get a few renovation restoration jobs on Dick Wilson courses, which is interesting, including Cog Hill. But uh, from that Sports Illustrated article, I thought this would be amusing for folks that are curious about Trent Jones versus Dick Wilson. And <clears throat> there were some fantastic quotes in this story. 
written by a guy named uh, William Brown, spelled with a Welsh uh, spelling of his first name. Wilson is a fine architect, says Jones charitably, but he tends to mimic a bit too much. He uses some holes over and over again, and he builds too many doglegs. On some courses, he'll dogleg 14 of the 18 holes. And then Wilson comes back in the next paragraph. Jones is a nice fella and a good friend of mine, says Wilson, just as charitably. But as far as his work is concerned, I think he gives an impression of too many straight lines. Straight lines are something you want to get away from. <laughs> okay, Jones comes back and says, Wilson copies a lot of our ideas. The long tees, the flank trapping. We got a lot of fun out of this last year when we were putting in a country club of Miami. And Wilson was nearby building Doral. Come over to our course, take a look at some of the things we were doing, and then run back and put the same things in a Doral. And another thing, I could design a course that everyone would think had been done by Wilson, but he could never build a Jones course. And then finally, Wilson responds, for heaven's sake, or words to that effect, says Wilson, if I had wanted to copy anything, I'd have picked a better course than the Country Club of Miami. I never copied a golf hole in my life, even one of my own. Besides, Jones's work is too much on the artificial, manufactured side to suit me. It doesn't fit the ground as well as it should because he hasn't made enough effort to fit it. Even from the very first work, his work never showed this effort. Look at it like this. You can put a beautiful woman in an expensive dress, but if the dress doesn't fit, Neither the woman nor the dress is going to look any good at all. It's the same with building a golf course. you got to cut the course to fit the property. So if you think today's architects have a little chirping that goes on between them in competing for jobs, behind-the-back little whispers, Jones and Dick, Trent Jones and Dick Wilson were at this in 1962, and they were calling each other friends. Oh, by the way, Al, that's uh, Dick Wilson in a nutshell. And again, in his period where he was in his heyday, we don't love that architectural style as much anymore that calls for the force carries a little bit too one dimensional for some, but recognizing that at that time, he was as good as anybody in the business. Yeah, going back to when you rifled off that list of the renovation work he had gotten to, I mean, that's a an A-list group of courses. The the feud with Trent Jones, you know, hey, love the guy, but you know, and it wasn't exactly an <laughs> exercise in subtlety. Um, they're not really fooling anyone there. But uh, that's that's very good. I'm glad you shared the the anecdotes and the and the quotes from those two guys. That's that was really entertaining. When you talk about the you know a lot of the the forced carries and the fear factor on these Dick Wilson courses, you, know, you look at pictures of pine tree, and I think the best example maybe is the picture I saw of the 13th. It's a par three hole where it's just a wash with bunkers, tee to green, basically, and asking you to. You know, hey, you, you basically have to hit an aerial shot that lands right here, and then you don't really have anywhere else to to go with it. So it gives you a sense of what he, some of the things he tried with his courses and, and really challenging players. Yeah, no question. I mean, there were golf holes you could point to, especially par threes, that you say, hey, force carries are fine, obviously. But there were some other things that he wasn't so in your face about that I respected. And one of the holes that really influenced me in the late 1980s, I mean, this is how far back I go thinking about this stuff, was the original par 5 17th at La Costa's South Course. And ultimately, that was uh, the part of the finishing four holes that was called Golf's Longest Mile when the Tournament of Champions was played there and the uh, Accenture match play and so forth. Well, what was interesting about that hole, it was about 560 as a par five. It was because there was a decent sized lake on the right side of the hole, not fronting the green, but a little bit back of it. So in the day, 560 was a pretty good, pretty good uh, distance. So you didn't have to carry this lake. 
Um, if you chose to go for it in two, and that was pretty tough back in the 60s, especially with the wind and the conditions in San Diego, uh, it wasn't a all-or-nothing dramatic risk-reward play. Instead, it just sat there on the right side. But you know what would happen when somebody would try a three-wood or a four-wood back in the day and you didn't hit it too well? Uh, chances are you were going to hit a little slice. It was a little bit of a weak slice, and you were going to find that lake. So your brain says, well, do I really want to risk slicing it, which is a negative thought, into that lake sitting there? Maybe I should just hit a five iron for my second so I won't go near that lake. And now I've got like a six or seven iron for my third shot when I really wanted a wedge. That was really, really good strategic thinking, even though it wasn't as obvious as stick a diagonal hazard, you know, and hey, risk reward. So that was some early Dick Wilson stuff that impressed me. So, Al, you've got another architect that you consider one of history's most underrated. Who is that? Yeah, it may come as a surprise that we're including this guy on our list uh, because he has become very well known, I think, as his courses have been restored or promoted more and as you see more images of things on social media that really catch your eye. Uh, the next guy we want to talk about is Mike Strantz. And we probably wouldn't be having this conversation had he not tragically passed away at such an early age in 2005 there would probably be more examples that we could point to and certainly as i mentioned the more people are able to see strands courses you, you probably wouldn't consider him to be underrated although the thing about strands was you kind of either loved him or you hated him for his course design he's a very polarizing figure in golf course architecture very different you know, you, you've never seen anything like Tobacco Road if you've been there. The same kind of goes for, on a lesser level, Caledonia and True Blue and, and Myrtle Beach and Pauly's Island on the Grand Strand, uh, or the recently updated Tothill Farm. Those are of the seven original Mike Strand's designs that exist today. And uh, like I said, he was on a track to, to keep going and, and produce much more. He was earning all these awards, best new course to open, and... Uh, at one point, he was voted one of the 10 most influential golf course architects in, of history. And, you know, this is still a young guy and really just starting to, to get his uh, his groove and his role on uh, when he passed away. So kind of start at the beginning, you know, Strands was focused on being an artist. And he went to Miami University of Ohio uh, to study studio art, but developed an interest in golf course architecture, uh, went to Turfgrass Management School at Michigan State, and interned in Ohio at Inverness Club. Uh, eventually, they host the 1979 U.S. Open, and Tom Fazio calls him over to help remodel some of the holes there before the tournament. Tom Fazio is so pleased with Mike Strand's work, he puts him on a plane to Hilton Head, where he helps develop at Moss Creek, uh, Devil's Elbow North, a uh, new a new Fazio golf course down there in the Low Country. He gets his groove. He works with Fazio a lot uh, on a real a number of notable courses that you've probably heard of, from Lake Nona to Wild Dunes, Wade Hampton in North Carolina, Black Diamond, and kind of started to grow away from the business and back towards his art career. Moves to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, wants to be an artist, you know, starts his own studio, and uh, maybe we never hear from him again. Then in September 1989, Hur Hurricane Hugo rolls through, devastates the Southeast, one of the, the worst, you know, costliest hurricanes in the history of our country, comes in and just levels that part of the country, including. Wild Dunes, where he had done work. Fazio calls him back up again and says, do you want to come out here and help me uh, reconstruct and, and remodel this place? And so that kind of gets his, his foot back in the door, gets the itch, starts to be scratched again. And from there, uh, he gets 
Caledonia, I think in 94, his first solo design sends him up to Virginia to do Royal New Kent. He does True Blue. Uh, he picks up Tobacco Road at the end of the decade in 1999, followed shortly thereafter by Tothill Farm in Asheboro, North Carolina, uh, and goes to back to South Carolina, does Bulls Bay, uh, his first private design. The, the courses, the aforementioned courses that I talked about are all public. So you can see his work at all these places. Uh, Bulls Bay would be a little bit harder to get onto. And the last one was Monterey Peninsula that is really considered the one of the original seven Mike Strand's courses. So a lot of his work, you know, we'll never know what, what would happen with, with Mike Strands if he could have kept going. I love this quote. I found this quote from Keith Cutton, who's now a, cutting his teeth in golf course architecture and now with Whitman, Axlin, and Cutton design. Um, he talks about Mike Strands. I'll, I'll give you the quote here and, and kind of encapsulates him. In the 1990s, Mike Strands was the most notable of Tom Fazio's protégés to advance the trend in bold design. Critically, where Strands differed from, Fra from Fazio was his deep respect for the past work of Alistair McKenzie. Strands harkened back to classic design principles with courses full of quirky, seemingly random features. Yet in keeping with Fazio, his products were bold. Strands believed that golfers wanted excitement during their rounds. And while he delivered the classic principles, he frequently cranked them up to 11 on a scale out of 10. Strands' presentation of classic, strategic choices were more blatant, his changing of the angles of play were, were much more pronounced, and his bunkers were situated that much closer to the best line of play. Effectively, the branded design delivered by Strands was a grand, upscaled version of the classic approach. Golfers either loved him or hated him for it, and that sentiment particularly applied to the media. And now that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. This polarizing guy... You you go and every time you know I I love Tothill or excuse me I love Tobacco Road and there's so many people who don't you know, you get it from the very first hole on that course it's a actually just a straightaway par five but it confuses you uh, you're on an elevated tee box you've got these two massive built up mounds obscuring the second half of the fairway where your drive is going to end up. And it looks like the hole kind of serpentines through them. Really, you just need to play a shot that goes right over them. And that leads you into probably what will be a blind second shot if you're going to go for the par 5 in 2 green, which is very doable, uh, but you won't be able to see where your ball ends up. Uh, it just continues on from there. It snowballs throughout the rest of that course. And in terms of things that uh, make you certainly uncomfortable the first time you play it, but thrill you that much more the second and third and each subsequent time you're able to play that layout. I think it's a masterfully done golf course, but I understand the idea that you don't like know not knowing where your golf ball is going to be. Uh, you're confused. You're, uh, you feel like you're in a... Um, Who's the very abstract artist with the clocks melting off the walls and, and all that stuff? Who am I thinking of? Yeah, that's a perfectly apt way to put it, Al. Um, there was a little bit of a Salvador Dali about Mike Strands, <laughs> yeah, sure. in addition to some Alistair McKenzie. A lot of people talk about Strands courses as being a sensory overload type of thing, and I would agree with that. Uh, and that's something that maybe you you like or dislike too. I just appreciate Mike Strands because it's every course is like no other course that you've played. You can't sit there and say like, you know, this reminds me of this, but without just referring to another Strands course. And it's not boring. That's the thing I like about it most. Uh, you, you don't find yourself thinking, you know, I don't remember half the holes at, at a Mike Strands design. Uh, you're certainly going to go away remembering the vast majority of them individually, which to me is is a mark of something really special. Al, I applaud your choice of Mike Strands in in this category. 
as uh, most underrated. It is hard to believe he's been gone 19 years and there's been a lot more attention focused on Mike Strands in recent years as there's just more and more uh, architecture uh, more widely available to read about and people talk about it and the different platforms and so forth. So it's not like he's an unknown. It's just even with all of that attention, he's still underrated. And that goes to exactly what you're talking about. Go out to the individual courses. Go see those individual holes. You know, I absolutely loved Caledonia the first time I played it. How did he pack so much interesting, cool architecture into 6,500 yards? Then I played Tobacco Road, and I'm like, what in the world is this? I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I didn't like it. And then eventually I made a return visit and the light went off. It's just what you described. It was never boring. You'd look at a golf hole and go, I've never seen this anywhere else before. Okay. You go to the next hole and it was another surprise. Yeah. I mean, they all fit in with whatever the property called for, whatever the routing had, but you just were blown away by this man's imagination, the technical skill it took to bring it off. And in an era now where, I mean, there's so much going on, but less, or fewer original designs than there were 25 years ago, so much of it we've gotten so safe. Yes, we want to go back and build these Golden Age homage holes to Seth Rayner and C.B. McDonald and 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 you just worship these golden age guys. Well, that's fine. They had great sites and many of them did unbelievably great work. But how about some original stuff too? And whatever influences that Mike Strands had from Mackenzie, from Tom Fazio and others, Donald Ross working at Inverness and so forth, um, Mike Strands was a true original. And it's kind of heartbreaking to think about if he had just lived another 20 years, what else we could have seen from him and how that might have even helped change the direction of architecture further, where there was still more experimenting going on, more bold work being featured, and developers, municipalities, and other places actually willing to take a chance on something that was a little bit out of the box, so to speak. So, uh, yep. All credit to uh, to Mike Strands. Final individual on your list, Joe. We're going to go to someone who's a little bit more modern. Well, Al, the architect that I have in mind for this final slot is still in his heyday, but he's also been practicing design for 25 years, 30 years, some form or another, maybe even longer. The name I have for you is Brian Curley. Most of you who know of Brian Curley think of Brian as half of Schmidt Curley. And that's how you should start because Schmidt Curley uh, is still in existence as a firm name, had a long history of tremendous designs. But I say tremendous designs worldwide. And that's where we run into the situation for Brian Curley. Uh, because Lee Schmidt is uh, is not as active in design. He's still out there. Uh, Brian is doing still full bore and that sort of thing. But you probably haven't seen much recognizable Schmidt Curly work because there aren't that many original designs in the U.S. It, it's just one of those things. Most of their golf and their great golf has been created far, far away and most of that has been in Asia. So, you know, where do I start with that? Well, I, I mean, why aren't there names, uh, household names among course connoisseurs? They've had golf courses in 25 countries, uh, more than 150 courses, and yet it's just not the name that jumps to mind when you start listing off architects. Well, I mean, partly it's just a lack of ego, uh, because many of their finest creations have been overshadowed by the reputations of their celebrity employers or design consultants. That's the first issue for Schmidt Curley. And in many cases, Brian Curley's work 
you know, you had names like Nick Faldo, like Fred Couples, a whole bunch in China. Uh, and you're like, oh, well, is this a Nick Faldo course or a Fred Couples course? And because that's the way the developer wanted to market it. But in reality, it was Schmidt Curley that did the heavy lifting on one of those projects. Credit Nick Faldo, who's a, a got his own design firm right now. Freddie Couples for being a great consultant, for throwing in what he likes, what works here, what doesn't. But the guys that are actually getting the work done out there that drew it up were Schmidt Curley. And so you have heard of some golf courses that have been ranked uh, in the top 100, such as uh, out uh, where I live, uh, Southern Dunes, which is now casino owned called Akchin Southern Dunes, has been a top 100 public golf course for a long time. Uh, no homes or roads on the golf course. It's tribally owned and it embraces a little bit of a sandbelt look. Well, Fred Couples was the consultant there, and half the time you just see Fred Couples, you know, uh, credit credit him. So for the most part, okay, Lee Schmidt and Brian Curley understood, hey, we're still earning our paycheck here, um, even though Freddie's getting a little bit of the credit, or in many of the courses they did with Nick Faldo, such as Marriott Shadow Ridge in the Palm Springs area, Another little bit of a tribute to the Australian Sandbelt with these really great flowing flamboyant bunkers, terrific strategies on a couple of the short par fours. Again, you know, a number of golf courses that just got some other celebrity name. And boy, did that come to fruition with the first huge project they did in China. And meanwhile, they've done courses... 40, more than 40 courses in China alone. And again, how many of us have been to China to see those courses? So the original Mission Hills in Shenzhen, um, not far from Hong Kong, actually. So the course names were named after their celebrity consultant designer, Nick Faldo, Jumbo Ozaki, Ernie Els, Jose Maria Olathabo, uh, there was a David Duval course that was replaced by a Justin Rose Ian Poulter course. Vijay Singh, a Chinese golfer, then Jean Elgin Wei, Annika Sorenstam, and then a literally a Pete Dye course. And all of them were built by Brian Curley. So, again, all of the folks that went to this colossal resort in Asia had these famous names, and they were there whether to assist in the design or the ribbon cutting, but pretty much it was Brian Curley under the Schmidt Curley banner, along with their associates that did the work. So when Schmidt Curley went to Hainan to do a new one for Mission Hills with 12 courses, at least those had their own names. Blackstone, Sandbelt Trails, The Vintage, Lava Fields, names like that. And every one of them was distinctive. That was what they were charged with doing. So, okay, we got to build 12 courses. How do you do that and make them all different? Well, you use your imagination and you move around a ton of dirt. You know, you had those kind of situations going on. But then you also had, a course, another one in the top 100 that you can play in the U.S. called the Wilderness Club in Eureka, Montana, not far from the Canadian border. So in the early days, Schmidt Curley, which was, again, this was Brian Curley's project, shared credit with Nick Faldo. Later, marketers decided that Faldo was just going to get the design credit. So again, uh, Brian and Lee got paid and <laughs> all of that, but they lose out on a little bit of the credit. And yet there was a golf course where the land was so good that Brian Curley said, hey, we didn't really want to move much dirt at all because the land was so good. Contrast that to his assignments in China. Somebody's saying, here's a mountain, you know, go carve it up and build 10 courses for us and that sort of thing. So 
You know, Brian uh, has also done some other work in the desert uh, in the, of Palm Springs, the palms and the plantation, both which just get huge accolades from the people in the know because they haven't hosted big tournaments and that kind of thing. So um, as far as style, that's the hard thing to pigeonhole because they were so adaptive. They were so flexible that whatever the property called for, the developer wanted, use your imagination. You know, I was at a place called Stone Forest once in China, seeing some of the most incredible architecture that ever appeared. Unfortunately, the government, like they did in China, closed many of the courses down before the world could really see them. And Stone Forest was, as its name implies, these weird parsed stone pillars sticking up and golf holes designed through them and around them. It looked like a fantasy calendar course, but it was amazing. So again, you go to Egypt, you go to Sweden, you go to Vietnam, you go to a whole lot of places and you can see Schmidt Curley's work and, and Brian Curley, who's still very active and a, a bit more on the renovation side in the US, some original stuff in other countries. But um, that's maybe the most amazing modern example for me is how can you design so many courses that have hosted so many tournaments, LPGA, European Tour, Asian Tour, and so forth, skins games, and yet not quite be household names among the folks that are talking about the elite architects on the planet. Yeah, I think it's hard to get people to cast their attention to a lot of the courses outside of the U.S. Uh, if they're not going to be in the, the British Isles. Um, you're talking about a lot of these courses in Asia that you know a lot of people probably will never get to see. Uh, it's unfortunate that he doesn't get the type of notoriety for these places that uh, he yeah, should. Yeah, I mean, some of those courses in China and Vietnam may as well be on another planet because the people who do their serious evaluating of golf courses are, are just not going to be able to get there. Yeah, Stone Forest, like you were talking about, I mean, that it's now closed, but yeah, it's it's like they designed a golf course through Stonehenge, but it, the Stonehenge pillars of rock are just everywhere it's literally yeah. a forest of rock love that another good choice joe um let's end the conversation by talking about maybe some others you considered for this list um i can go first if you'd like and it speaks to the you know hey they're not in the united states really uh so they may not be as talked about as much but names probably new it's certainly hard to say that someone like stanley thompson is underrated because of his success in Canada. Uh, probably the most well-known Canadian golf course architect, the Toronto Terror, as he was known. Uh, designs like Fairmont, Banff Springs, Jasper Park Lodge. Uh, there's Highlands, Highland Links, uh, St. George's. Some of the real heavy hitters in the country of Canada are Stanley Thompson designs. I think he's just kind of someone that's overlooked because he's not American. Uh, the same maybe can go for a more current guy who we referenced Keith Cutton as part of his team, but Rod Whitman. Uh, I mean, what he's done, the first Cabot property, Cabot Links, uh, that golf course that kind of spurred everything for the Cabot brand uh, was a Rod Whitman design. Uh, he's got several others that rank highly in Canada, Wolf Creek, uh, Black Hawk Golf Club. And we'll actually get to maybe get a better grip on Rod Whitman, although it's a short course design, but the shorties, the new Bandon Dunes R3 course that'll be opening this year is Rod Whitman, uh, Dave Axlin, and Keith Cutton designed by those those three on that team. So people will get more familiar with his work, certainly. Uh, I know he was doing some shaping at Cabot Citrus Farms when I was there, um, he does amazing things. He's involved in the Cabot Revelstoke, yet kind of remains to be seen on him. But I think he is someone who deserves more shine, for sure. What about you, Joe? Any, anyone else come to mind? Well, you know, sometimes it's tough to evaluate the 
the modern architects because many of them are still going with another five, 10, maybe 20, 25 years, you know, of projects as we see how they develop, you know, uh, are they underrated? I mean, do they deserve more credit kind of thing? I think, um, you know, they, there have to be evaluations or rankings or discussions or tournaments held. And then you figure out, well, yeah, gosh, they deserve some more credit. You know, we're just not hearing enough. Uh, one of the names, there are three guys in a firm that pops to mind, are Mike Clayton, Mike DeVries, and Frank Pont. And they have formed a firm. There's an Australian uh, and then an American and uh, Frank Pont being in Europe. Uh, they have a London-based office. Mike Clayton, one of the deepest thinkers about golf courses, uh, has written extensively. He was a successful tournament player in Australia and has been called upon to renovate a number of that country's top golf courses. Again, though, it's Australia. Uh, and so we don't hear as much about some of those renovations. Um, many uh, would know his name because he collaborated with Tom Doak um, on the Lost Farm uh, down in Tasmania. And, uh, you know, again, you know, top 100 easily sort of thing. But the renovation and restoration work that he and his new partners are doing, you have Mike DeVries, who did the Kingsley Club, one of the most underrated golf courses anywhere in Michigan, and who uh, Mike DeVries grew up basically learning and playing at Crystal Downs, McKenzie and Maxwell. Uh, and then Frank Pont, who is probably the world's most foremost Holt restorer. Uh, all the works of H.S. Colt, whether in Britain, whether in the Netherlands, you know, in, and elsewhere. Um, and man, if you can accomplish that for what uh, many across the pond consider the greatest of all golf course architects is Harry Colt. So uh, those are some guys, I think, that even now as they're still writing their story, are underrated. DeVries, we called uh, in a story a couple of years ago, the best architect you've probably never heard of uh, for his work with Cape Wickham and, and Kingsley clubs and really high-profile golf courses. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, they're now a team of three, Clayton, DeVries, and Pont together, um, doing some very, very good work. All right, that'll wrap it up, Joe. Uh, until next time, we'll, I'm sure we could have, if we worked tirelessly on this podcast, we could have come up with 10 names instead of five, but these were the, the five that we decided and sorted out would be good for this purpose. Yeah, we gave them a little depth because they're deserving. So again, agree or disagree with us, but uh, let us know. And uh, Al, good to be with you again. Likewise, Joe.